0: Welcome to the Remote Real Estate Investor. On today's episode, we have guest Patrick Burns, who is the co-founder and CEO of Spruce Title. We get into the title process and some key terms as it relates to remote real estate investors. We also look into the crystal ball of looking at the future as it relates to policy and technology. All right, let's do it. Patrick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. So I'll just say right off the bat, I'm originally from Scotland, that's the accent, but I've been in the States for a little over 10 years now, based out of New York, and my background prior to starting Spruce was in technology, broadly the financial technology sector, and it was really around the middle of 2015, beginning of 2016. That the sort of the beginnings of spruce took place, where we had broadly saw a number of changes happening in and around the real estate and real estate finance industry. Obviously, you know the 2010s were a big decade for real estate investing. The sort of evolution post the financial crisis, but we're also seeing this affecting really the consumer facing aspects of real estate, with you know the expansion of. More digital mortgage companies, but also a number of new models. So remember, it's 2015 that the iBuyers like OfferPad and, and Open Door open, you know, started. But beyond that, there was also a proliferation of other models geared towards giving consumers convenience. And that was the context in which we really saw the opportunity or the need for different infrastructure supporting those new kinds of real estate transactions. And so with my co-founder, Andrew Weisgau, we sort of very trepidatiously decided to, to try and do something about it. And so for the last four years, really, my life has been you know, trying to improve real estate transactions from the title insurance and escrow end of things. Excellent.
0: Excellent. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff happening with institutional buyers, like you said, iBuyers and these public REITs putting put together, buying, but Spruce, the type of customers they have, is it primarily retail buyers or is it both sides, both retail as well as institutional customers?
1: Yeah, it's, it's honestly quite a broad spectrum. I think I'll start by saying who tend to not be our customers. And that's the most sort of traditional real estate transaction where real estate transactions happening locally with local realtors, a mortgage broker, buyer and seller. That's what it has been, you know, for much of the last hundred years, that's best served by the sort of the local service provider or that's how it happens. The generation of clients that Spruce was created to serve were really the clients that were doing things remotely, first Mm -hmm. of all, online at scale, most often across multiple geographies. And so where we come in is, you know, when those companies or mortgage lenders or buyers or brokers have the need for a sort of scalable, efficient solution, very often that can provide some extra convenience, some digital experience to the their end consumer. That's really where we come in. And so what that ends up looking like is we work with you know, forward-thinking mortgage lenders, we work with rent-to-own models, sale-leaseback models, equity investment or down payment assistance models, digital brokers of both, you know, sort of owner-occupied traditional units, as well as, of course, you know, rental and and investment properties like Roofstock. Yeah,
0: that's great. We'll dive a little bit more into where Spruce fits into this ecosystem and a little bit more about just kind of in general about title. But let's start with defining some terms. I think Title is one of those things that can be a little bit ambiguous in what it means. So I think now's a good time to level set. So go ahead and define me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ramp off a couple of different terms here and sure. we'll walk through and just do the elevator pitch on understanding what they mean. So title, title insurance, escrow, deed, walk us through some of these different elements. And if I'm missing any core elements, feel free to add this onto the list.
1: Sure. Let me just start by saying, you know, it wasn't so long ago that these terms were all a mystery to me as well. And what was frustrating trying to learn about the industry is that a lot of these terms are kind of shrouded in a bit of mystery. They're used interchangeably with other terms. There seems to be different terms in different parts of the country relating to the exact same thing. Um, and this is all the case. So, you know, first of all, I would say, If people feel like they they don't understand all these details, even experienced real estate investors, it sometimes seems like that's by design. I think I'll be generous (laughs) and say I don't think that's by design. That's just because, you know, the way this industry has evolved over, you know, the last decades plus is very locally where different terms have evolved for different things. And, you know, a large part of what we try and do at Spruce is sort of create more consistency and transparency into the process so people aren't trying to jump around with terminology or or, or figure these things out on the fly. I'll jump right in um, to the list there. So title, title insurance. Title is just it's the legal word for what we what we refer to as ownership of real property. So real property as opposed to you know the personal property that you own. And we have title in this very sort of normal concept of like, I own a home. But really what that means is I have a bunch of rights as it pertains to the home. So I have the right to use it. I have the right to rent it out, that kind of thing. And the reason it's defined that way is very often you have many rights to the property, but someone else has a right as well, right? You maybe have a utility easement. That's a form of, you know, ownership of the property. It's it's that that utility company might have, um, and you might also own the home subject to a debt, like a mortgage, for example. Title insurance is quite simply a a sort of guarantee surrounding that ownership. So title insurance protects a title holder, or rather an insured, from a defect in their ownership. So I think I own a home, I get a title insurance policy to guarantee that I own the home, but um, there, it, it's discovered or it's uncovered somehow that there is uh, something stopping me from using the home and I incur a financial loss from that. Title insurance is there to, to protect me. And just quickly, there's really two forms of title insurance. There's owner's title insurance that protects you know, us as owners and then there's lender's title insurance. Of course, the lender has an ownership interest in a property that they're lending against. And so they, they want an insurance policy protecting them from financial loss um, associated with not actually ending up owning that interest.
0: I think that aspect is pretty interesting of, you know, I can buy a home and then someone can come up and say, oh, no, I own that home. D- does that happen often? Like, I don't know, how often are claims and what kind of metric would you you know use to, to measure the cadence of that?
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, it's it's the apocryphal tale of, you know, you want this because an unknown heir is going to arrive on your doorstep and say, hey, mister, that's, that's my home. Broadly speaking, it is apocryphal, right? These things tend to not happen. They happen very, very infrequently. But what's important to realize is they happen infrequently because of the steps taken by the title company to assure you that they're not going to happen right? We don't just issue a title insurance policy site unseen or without having done an analysis of the ownership of the property. We do that at analysis. And I think these, these things are very, very common in the world of, of, of real estate investing, where the ownership structure of a property isn't just a wife and a husband, it's an LLC. Maybe it's an LLC that's passed through a number of hands. Maybe the LLC has had a partnership that was dissolved over time. And so you quickly start to see how these ownership disputes could arise. And the job of a title company is to look into that chain, look into that ownership structure, whether it be the ownership structure of an LLC who has authority to execute a transaction on behalf of an LLC. And really what the folks listening in to this podcast might be more concerned about, you know, are they buying a home that came out of uh, some kind of corporate dispute or disillusion or you know, things like that? And of course, the incidents like someone showing up on your doorstep or suing you don't happen very often, but they will surely happen if a title company doesn't do their job.
0: Michael, do you have any outstanding questions on... Just title, title insurance. I'm sure you got something good.
2: Yeah, I've got a billion title questions, but we don't. I don't think we have time for that on this podcast. But was hoping to just finish out the definition list for all of our listeners here. So, can you talk to us maybe about the difference, Patrick, between title and escrow because those, those are so often talked about conjointly.
1: Yeah, exactly. They're often talked about conjointly because they're often just done by the same same company, the same party. The title process really is is you know those aspects of the transaction that relate to that ownership piece of things. Whereas escrow is quite simply the money movement. And in fact also the, the contract movement as well. You know, often we hear of documents being held in escrow. It's really the execution of the transaction. In most of the country it's really the same company doing doing both pieces of things. So Spruce is both a, a title agency and an escrow agency. It's very common in California, especially Southern California, for them to be separate entities. There aren't really any good reasons for that, other than that's the way things evolved there for a whole bunch of reasons. Doing the title part of the process was extremely costly in California. And so companies evolved to do the escrow piece where they could have the sort of the local presence and the local relationships and rely on a, a separate title company to provide the title insurance. But yeah, so broadly speaking, escrow is the money movement where the money sits and under what conditions the money moves out of the transaction. And title is really about the the transfer of ownership of the property.
2: Okay, great. And so maybe can you walk us through what a traditional transaction looks like from a title perspective? What are the kind of sequence of events that go on in the escrow process?
1: Sure. So everything starts when there's a executed purchase contract. So you know, a buyer and a seller have agreed to a bunch of conditions under which they're willing to go through the sale, and that then becomes the set of instructions that the title and escrow company will use to to carry out that transaction on behalf of both parties. Really, the first thing that they'll do is that title search. So they'll look into the ownership of the property and that would normally generate a a sort of to-do list for them to really be able to ensure that what they're transferring to the buyer is this free and clear ownership, right? So the super common ones there is property has a mortgage, they need to make sure they can pay the mortgage off out of escrow. So they'll be contacting the mortgage lender to, to get a payoff statement for that, but Very common things that show up, especially in rental property transactions are, you know, we talked about it, that LLC ownership. So as a seller in a transaction, you'll be asked to produce your LLC documentation, articles of incorporation, who has authority to sign on behalf of the LLC, these kind of things. These might seem like unusual questions to be asked, but they're really all going into that process of guaranteeing that you can transfer free and clear ownership to the buyer. So that work will be done. We will be able to understand, yes, we can close this transaction. We know exactly how to do it so that we can guarantee to the buyer in the form of an insurance policy that they're getting this free and clear ownership. And then it's also our responsibility to make sure the transaction is closed properly. There will normally be things in the purchase contract that govern that, who's paying for what, for example. And I really would encourage everyone, especially... You know, people that are new to especially remote real estate investing, where you may be engaged with a purchase contract that is traditional in another state from where you are, to really read that purchase contract and understand what you're responsible for paying at closing. But those instructions will go into producing a settlement statement or a, or a HUD-1 statement, and will also be responsible for governing who's paying what in the transaction. So that will include things like you know, prorating property taxes for the time the seller has owned the home or the buyer will own the home. Very common we see nowadays prorating rent for you know transactions where there's a te- there's a resident in place, things like homeowners association, transfer documents, these kind of things. These are all part of that closing process where a good title and escrow company will really make it seem as seamless as possible. Produce all of the pertinent facts to you as a buyer. Again, common things to watch out for. Does an HOA allow rental properties in in a particular area? These are all things that would go into that closing process. And then we go about executing the transaction. So we'll drop a deed or have a law firm drop a deed where, where that's required. And the seller will execute the deed. That deed will be recorded with the local county and all the monies that were collected as part of the transaction will be dispersed to the seller, the payoff mortgage lender, the HWA, everywhere that it has to go. And as the buyer, you'll end up with uh, you know, a recorded deed transferring ownership to you and a title insurance policy. Okay,
2: great. And I've heard that most title companies won't allow you to close the transaction if there's issues with the title. right? I've heard it recalled to as cleaning the
1: title. Yeah, yeah. Cleaning or clearing title, it's, look, it's, it's not so much that they won't allow you to close the transaction. It's that they won't ensure the transaction, right? Like if there's a, if, if there is, and there's always a way to clear this, right? It's just a question of, does it work for you and your timeline? Does it work for you and your financial situation? What you'd be buying it subject to? But again, you know, these are issues that when you're buying residential property as just an owner, they come up rarely. But when you're buying rental properties because of these ownership structures or because, you know, we're we're often buying rental properties that are more likely to have been subject to things like tax sales or foreclosure proceedings and so on, there tends to be more to that analysis of ownership. And it absolutely is the case that sometimes that ownership is really, really hard to ascertain or there's some party that may have an ownership interest that just isn't playing ball with you. They can, you know, they're not willing to sign away that in the form of a quick claim deed. They're not willing to, you know, agree on a payoff amount for some private judgment that they had, that kind of thing. And so in those circumstances, a title insurance company, or at least what, what we would say at Spruce is we can close this transaction subject to these issues. And you know, whether you want to take that at face value, whether you want to get independent legal advice about that, or you know, whether you want to, to sort of listen to us if we're saying that it's not it's not really a good idea, um, then that that's kind of the prerogative of the ultimate buyer.
0: I'd love to hear on um, what are the, some of the more common issues and what are some maybe like really outside the box issues that you guys have have ran into?
1: Yeah. So the more common issues, I would say, especially in this segment, are really around those sort of corporate actions. We often have issues where, you know, an investor is maybe out of the country or the sellers out of the country. That tends to be more problematic. And it's it's been a really interesting environment right now where, you know, a a number of states have signed executive orders allowing for the expansion of online notarization. But there's this very sort of maddening on the one hand, but interesting on the other web of which states allow which documents to be notarized electronically, remotely and electronically in person via a power of attorney, all these, these sort of different considerations. And sometimes just getting the the documents executed and recorded in a way that's in accordance with the laws of a given state is a, a sort of crazy mind game of, of you know decision trees. That that's something that's been coming up a lot. And then I would say, yeah, beyond that, it's it really tends to be things around was an estate executed correctly? Can we contact all of the you know all of the decedents in that state? Can we contact the you know every member of the LLC that clearly because of the operating agreement need to approve of a sale these kind of things. In terms of more out of the box ones, they don't happen that often. But there's definitely you know very, that occasionally you'll find odd circumstances. We've definitely had some stories about title issues arising from people claiming to have ghosts in their home. Uh, It was one, I remember we, we did a blog post on this last Halloween. There was some home in New Jersey that was apparently occupied by a ghost and the sellers knew this and didn't disclose it to the buyers. And the reason the title company got involved in it is because the buyers claimed that it was some title defect that they didn't. You know, there was another owner in the property that wasn't being this to them. I forget how that one ended up. I'll need to, I'll need to find out about that. But beyond that, you know, one, one thing that comes up that's often a bit more unusual is boundary disputes. So again, it's not that common, especially in the Western part of the country where we, we have subdivisions, platted land. You know, you can look up the, the plat map and see it all divided very, very nicely. But in the certainly the original 13 colonies happens a lot in New York. You have legal descriptions to properties that the sort of legal definition of the property boundaries defined in these crazy ways, like you know, walk to the big oak tree at the northwest side of the property, take four hundred paces south <laughs> south by southeast, and then turn you know in the, these multiple paragraphs to describe the property and. Sometimes, you know, just the, the reality doesn't reflect what that legal description is, especially if, you know, maybe someone's owned the property for a very long time. In that instance, I, you know, I would really encourage everyone that, that that's involved in a tra- transaction like that basically to, to get survey, to get survey done of the land, have the lines redrawn, have the legal description restated if needed, because, you know, there are definitely instances where, you know, you just can't draw the property boundaries from this ancient legal description.
0: That's hilarious thinking of some of the old school uh, legal descriptions, you know. yeah, throw, yeah. Two, throw two stones with your left hand, see how far it goes. <laughs> this is a great segue talking about regional considerations. So I know, you know, closing title can be pretty specific state by state. From my knowledge, I know that there are certain states that are attorney states and there are Mm -hmm. certain states that require certain types of inspections and some may require surveys. I'd love you kind of just kind of like high level, you know, what other type of uh, unique regional considerations there are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are a ton of them. And again, you know, go back to what I said earlier. There are some differences that, that seem like differences, but they're really just customary. They're not, you know, any real legal consideration. But then there are some that are genuine legal considerations. Uh, and again, there's a, a large part of the role that, that we at Spruce play in these transactions is to really act as that guide between whether it's a, a, an investor or you know one of our clients operating from, you know, operating out of Oakland or operating out of New York, but buying homes in Cleveland, Ohio, for example. Cleveland and many other states potentially. And so we see our role as acting as that bridge so that you as a buyer, all you care about is does this property fit inside my buy box, not let me understand the nuances of the closing process in Cleveland Heights, where, by the way, you have to have a point point of sale inspection done prior to the closing of a transaction. So there are all these local nuances that do come up. Attorney States is another one where We talked about escrow earlier, that money movement part of things. There are some states like Georgia, where handling funds in a real estate transaction is considered practice of law. And so you need to engage a law firm in doing that. But again, if you work with Spruce, you shouldn't necessarily know much about that, because we would handle it on your behalf. So that's really, you know, one of the areas that has become a problem over the last 10, 15 years as more and more people are transacting real estate at a distance. And that's one of the problems that, that we're certainly trying to address. So
2: Patrick, when people are looking at title, because that's one of the nice things that Roofstock provides is a preliminary yeah. title search. What things should they be looking at? What should they be looking for? What would be a red flag for someone who maybe has never looked at a title policy before?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what you'd be saying is, am I going to be able to close this property on the timeline that I need to close it on? That's really what it comes down to because these things can always be solvable. There's always a way to solve them. And it's really what's the level of complexity here? Because that level of complexity tends to translate into the likelihood of closing delays. What you will see, first of all, is maybe you look at 100 property reports 90 of them are going to look virtually the same, right? 90 of them, they're going to be subject to a mortgage. They're going to be held in in an LLC or by an individual. And you can be pretty confident that that's not going to be an issue. The area when things start to get potentially more complicated is when you start to see mortgages that are held by private creditors or involuntary judgments that are held by third parties tax liens, you know, anything that's a, anything that has the IRS on it, that has to be dealt with prior to closing. And that can normally be something like there's a $10,000 federal tax lien that can just be paid out of closing. But if there's a large federal tax lien on there, such that, that you can bet that the property owner is underwater, that might be difficult because that might be one of those instances where the seller has to bring funds to closing themselves That might result in selling contingencies that they have. You know, these are all things that you can never tell that they're deal breakers just by looking at a title report, but they're the areas where there's a higher risk of a longer timeline around closing. Great.
0: I think a lot of buyers within Roofstock, you know, we list the preliminary title. They get intimidated. They see like, do I have to read through all of this if I want to make an offer on a property? I mean, my advice would be like, hey, you're not going to be able to close on this transaction because it'll get you know caught up in title. I don't know what would your feedback to a buyer.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. You know, like that's one of the one of the phenomenal things about Roofstock is the level of information is available to a prospective buyer. I think there's you know certainly parts of that that pertain to the buyer's investment criteria, their 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 investment goals, that kind of thing, and so that's clearly an area for deep deep analysis. In the title world, you know, I tend to look at it as more of a binary sort of problem. Title is just a friction in the transaction. It really shouldn't have anything to do with the investment outcome that you're looking for or that you're likely to get from the transaction, or affect the income of the transaction, that kind of thing. So, I would say, look, it's our job to deliver that title to you, free and clear, with an an owner's policy that's going to guarantee you no financial loss from the title in the transaction. And so there are, you know, I would encourage, you know, people that look at that and get intimidated to, to first of all, not not get intimidated. Feel free to ask questions, you know, feel free to ask questions of us at Spruce, you know, our our phone lines and email and chat is always open. But then the only instance where I would say, look, you really have to look at this carefully is if you're buying on a very tight timeline. Because there's nothing that can be solved there. There's nothing that can be solved quickly by a motivated seller. But it's just that there's going to be extra contingencies if some of these more complex title issues do exist on the property. But again, I wouldn't consider them as potentially impacting anything about your investment outcome if the transaction actually goes through.
0: It, I guess the, the other risk that I would advise for people out there is if you're buying on the courthouse steps or, yeah. you know, auctions, that's where you can end up buying a very expensive piece of paper <laughs> if you're <laughs> not like, near your title. So, but if you're buying through a more traditional marketplace where you're going to get title insurance, I think that's, I think that's a good, I think you can give yourself paralysis by analysis. Use oh, I need to read this whole preliminary title report before I submit an offer. Like, no, that's not the case. i like,
1: It's it's a great point, Tom, actually. And uh, yeah, I'd be remiss not to to point that out. There are many instances where you may want to buy a property without an owner's policy, without title insurance. If it's on the courthouse steps and you're buying site unseen for cash directly from the municipality, that may create an issue further down the line, right? When you go to sell that property, And it doesn't have that existing ownership, owner's policy on it, and it came out of a tax sale, that might be a real tough sell for you. Because when you sell that property, part of the the purchase agreement is that you're guaranteeing the buyer free and clear title, that you can deliver that. That's part of your conditions that you have to satisfy in, I think, every single purchase contract that, that I can think of. And so if you can't get a title insurance company to ensure that subsequent sale, then you're stuck. You're stuck holding onto the property for sure. Um, so that that is a really great point. Um, that when you're buying from the courthouse steps, you should be aware that there may be issues that you cannot see at that time that might cause problems for you in a resulting sale.
2: I want to go into that wormhole for just another minute here. Let's say you buy that property, the courthouse steps. Getting a title uh, owner's policy is not even an option, right? Is that is that the case?
1: Right. Yeah. Basically never.
2: And so you close on it and now realize, hey, there's title issues trying to get ahead of the eight ball before you sell. Can you just turn around and go to a company, a title company like Spruce and say, hey, can you clean this for me? Is that an option?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's an option. We can look into it and, and sort of see what's there and provide advice from that. There's one thing that's the sort of the where, where problems like this quickly go towards is a thing called a quiet title action. That's quiet, Q-U-I-E-T, which is basically the process by which, and it's slightly different in every state, but it's the process by which you go to a court and you say, look, I'm claiming ownership to this property. Anyone else that has a counterclaim, you know, come and tell me, basically. I probably did a horrific job of explaining the the legal process there, but that's really the, the, the sort of the final shot that you have to clear title when you can't otherwise do it. And it just takes time. It just takes time. And so I would actually encourage people if they do sort of buy a property in that way without an owner's policy, looking into it before they want to go and sell it is probably a good idea.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd love to switch gears here just a little bit and talk about money, which I think is always on everybody's mind. and. You know at, at Russstock, we have estimated closing costs, which correct me if I'm wrong are kind of all encompassing of the title and the escrow fees associated with closing the transaction. so how do title companies make money, and what are the typical if there is such a thing as a, as a typical fee or cost associated with with closing a transaction?
1: yeah, so there's two main sort of fees that you have to pay. And oftentimes, depending on who the title company is, they might be split out further. As first we try and bucket them just in these two fees. One is the fee for the title insurance policy, or policies, if you're getting a mortgage and you need to buy a policy for the lender. And the other is the fee for the escrow for closing the transaction. That title insurance fee is going to depend on the value of the home. So it's going to be lower if the home price is lower, and it's going to be higher if it's higher. And it's also going to depend on the state that you're in. The closing fee can also vary quite widely, and that's really the area where a savvy buyer should be looking with a fine tooth comb over what fees are being charged there and why. Because mm-hmm. it tends to be that the insurance premiums are in some cases, actually set by the state. So in Texas, Florida, New Mexico, they're actually governed by the state Department of Insurance. But in other, in most other states, while they're not necessarily governed by the state, it's one of those things where all of the insurance companies file very similar rates. So that tends not to be where you can be overcharged or get a deal from. The one thing I would I would definitely encourage people to do is ask if they're entitled to some kind of reissue rate or get savvy about hold open rates prior to buying a transaction. So if you are a, a fix and flipper or you intend to hold for only a very short period of time, you can do what's known as a hold open policy or a binder policy or only for a small fee extra. You can essentially say, okay, I'm going to turn around and resell this Shortly, so I'm going to like pre-buy an owner's policy for that subsequent owner. So it's common in California, Arizona, Colorado. There's there's a number of states, especially western states. And then where that's not available, what is often available is what's known as a reissue rate, which is it tends to be a smaller discount for having held the property only for a, a relatively small number of years. So definitely encourage you to ask the title company if any of these discounts are available to you um, because it may not always be that they're either the title company knows that they're available to you or I would just encourage you to ask. (laughs) Then they they Um, might not be advertising it. They might not be advertising it. They might not be advertising it. Okay. Then on the escrow and closing side, that's where the field gets blown pretty wide open with uh, a, a sort of large disparity of fees. Again, it's very common in California where that escrow fee is actually also increases with the value of the home, which to me doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You know, when you're talking about the insurance policy, obviously a greater home value, there's a greater potential loss. So that makes sense there. But when it comes to closing a transaction, you know, the work that we do to close a transaction that's a uh, you know, $2 million property in the Bay Area or a $200,000 property in San Bernardino or something like that, the work's the same, right? It's, it's still a deed, it's still a wire, that kind of thing. And so that's really an area where I would encourage you know, buyers to, to shop around a little bit or push the title or escrow company on what they're charging and why you know, common things that get added there are things like wire fees, courier fees, notary fees. You know, these are all things, these are all areas where consumers aren't really often asking why or challenging the company on that. But, you know, I can tell you that that's often an area where there's a lot of latitude as to what the company can charge there. And so that that's really an area where I would push the, the school company on it, or shop around for for a better deal elsewhere.
2: Sure, and you, we were talking about before how you know ninety percent of the titles that we see are going to be very easy, very cut and dry. Have a mortgage an LLC or a single owner, and then ten percent of them are more complicated. And that there's nothing, there's no problem that can't be solved. That should that should be the title. There's no title issue that's first <laughs> be solved.
1: But with so, time, so with time, with time, time with time, yeah. <laughs> With time, yeah.
2: <laughs> so is it fair to say then that the title fees increase with a more complicated title? Or is it pretty much going to be universally roughly the same cost? If we took two properties each at a $100,000 sale price, those title fees would be relatively similar.
1: Yeah. In almost all cases, they would be relatively similar. If you have to engage in one of these other legal processes, like a quiet title action or something like that, there would be additional fees involved. You may sure. even be encouraged to, you know, engage your own attorney, that, that kind of thing. But for the vast majority of cases, even if there are, you know, extra judgments on there or just sort of generally more work to be done, you're not going to be charged more, more for that transaction, certainly not by Spruce.
2: Great. Okay, cool. And so when you were talking about shopping around for different companies, I mean, how, how should someone go about doing that? What questions should people be asking of these title companies?
1: yeah it's not the easiest thing to do, unfortunately. And again, this has really comes out of the, the the history of real estate transactions being so local where in each local market you maybe only had one provider or one or two providers. and so it's not you know it's not the kind of thing where you can really do like an easy online comparison, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why there's been frankly a lot of regulation, maybe not even enough regulation into what can be charged by title companies. One of the things when we're talking about owner-occupied mortgages, the new tread rules that came into effect, we don't see this on investment transactions, but if you've gone through a mortgage refinance, for example, on your on your primary residence, you'll see these forms where it clearly states, you know, these are services that you can shop for. Right. Unfortunately, it doesn't say, you know, go to this website to compare rates. Yes. <laughs> right. because it's quite hard to do. So the best way to do it is really just to, to contact companies directly and ask for a quote. Or if, you know, maybe you're a buyer in a transaction and there's already an escrow company attached to it, maybe your first port of call is really to take the quote that they've been giving you and push them on it. Push them, you know, tell them what you can do, they can do with it. Ask them why they're charging, a wire fee or a notary fee or that, that kind of thing. Of course, the... Other thing that you could do is work with Spruce, where we're not going to give you a hard time about that stuff from the get-go.
2: Great. Love that.
0: I like it. Uh, You know, a couple of other process questions I want to ask real quick. So let's say I buy a property in my personal name, name, and then I want to do a quick claim deed to move it over to an LLC. One, can you explain what I just said? (laughs) And two, you know, is that something that Spruce is involved with as well?
1: (laughs) Sure. So I think the term that's worth explaining there is quick claim deed. What's a quick claim deed? And that's Q-U-I-T. Sometimes people say quick claim deed, but, but it's, a, it's a quick claim deed. And it's kind of supposed to do what it sounds like. Relinquish your claim to the property, right? So the difference between a quick claim deed and a deed that you might use elsewhere, and there's many other names for those other kinds of deeds, there's a grant deed which is very common uh, especially in the western part of the country there's a warranty deed special warranty deed that, you know all these kind of things are I mean broadly the same thing that basically means I as a seller I'm selling you this property and I'm telling you that I own the property it's mine to sell you right that's kind of the point of a, a warranty deed or a grant deed a quick claim deed is something that's a little, softer than that it basically says look i'm not saying i own this property but if i do or if i have any right to it i'm giving it to you now (laughs) and that's why that that, i mean that that's again i'm probably doing a terrible job and uh the the lawyers on my team will probably kill me for explaining it that way (laughs) Um, but, but the sense that i'm trying to give you is you don't want a quick claim deed from someone you don't know. Because it's much harder to pursue them for someone else that owns the property or something like that. And what that really translates into is that means a title insurance company won't insure a quick claim deed from someone that you don't know. So, the much more common use case for a quick claim deed is just like you said, Tom, I own an LLC, Hmm. I own a property in my own name, and I'm going to transfer it into the LLC the way you would do that is you would draft a quick claim deed or have a quick claim deed drafted for you. And it basically says, you know, I, Tom Schneider, I'm going to transfer all of my rights to this property into Tom Schneider Acquisitions LLC. Um, the other common use case is if you get married and you want to add your spouse to title or um, if you get divorced and as a result of the divorce proceedings, it, it transfers as well. Um so was that enough explanation for the process? And then I was going to come to some a few things to be careful of.
0: Uh, yes. And then also, are you involved with the title company in doing that?
1: Yeah, so absolutely, you might want to be. So the common times that you might want to do this is if you go to refinance your property, for example, or you go to sell the property, or you're just restructuring your properties in your portfolio. Oftentimes that's associated with a transaction, so there may be a title company involved anyway. It's very common when we are facilitating a refinance transaction, that's when we'll add a spouse to title or take a spouse off of title via a quick a claim quick deed. You may also want to do just a result of a portfolio restructuring or something like that, in which case you could absolutely engage a title company to facilitate that. Or it's something that you may want to just do by yourself or without, you know, with some legal advice.
2: Total self-serving question, Patrick. I've got a property that I own in an LLC. I bought it in my personal name. I quick claimed it to the LLC. Now rates have dropped and I want to refinance it. And I spoke to a lender and they said, nope, it's got to be in your personal name. How easy is it or expensive will it be to take it out of the LLC, put in my personal name, do the refinance, and then put it back into the LLC?
1: So it depends on where you where the property is in the country because really what you're going to pay for is recording that deed. Sure. Um, and so... In California. Okay, great. So I'm going to say it's about 150 bucks or something like that to record a deed in most sure. counties in California. And so basically it would be fairly straightforward. You could go online or you could email me and ask for a template for a quick claim deed. And you could fill in the details there. And I'm saying this because I hope someone will fact check me on this later, but the the drafting of a deed is not the practice of law in California. And I think in any case, if you're drafting a deed for yourself, it's certainly allowable. Um, but you would draft this deed you know, from the LLC back into your name, and you'd record that with the county where again, you know, you can go on the county website, they'll have instructions for how to record it. Or you could talk to your favorite title company and ask them to facilitate that for you. The one thing I would caution, and again, this comes back to this idea of time, you may want to do it as soon as possible, especially before you go to refinance the transaction, because it has to be recorded for long enough that it's going to show up on the title search that's right. providing the insurance to the lender. And sometimes there's just a lag, and there's especially a lag right now where a lot of counties are experiencing staff staff shortages and closures. Sure.
2: Okay. Fantastic. We got a chat offline, definitely. Thanks. <laughs>
1: um, and just the one other thing I wanted to to point out. So this is very common. We see there's a ton um, with rental property transactions where a borrower is trying to get a conventional mortgage from a non-investment purpose lender. So it has to be in a personal name and then they want to to move it into an LLC. Just the thing to be careful of is to make sure that you're not really transferring ownership other than in a structural sense. So for example, if you are a part owner of an LLC and you quit claim that property from your own personal name into the LLC, that is likely to be considered as a transfer of beneficial ownership. It could create all sorts of issues. First of all, that could mean the owner's title insurance policy that you bought is no longer valid. So if there was a title claim, the, the LLC may not be protected. Secondly, it could create transfer tax implications. You know, you can't just move, move properties around in a corporate structure if the ownership is really genuinely being transferred without paying transfer tax on it. And then the third thing is just, does that violate the conditions of the mortgage such that the, the debt becomes fully payable on that transfer? Again, mm-hmm. it's the kind of thing where it virtually is never a problem if it's a wholly owned LLC and you know, you're just moving it back and forth. But if it's genuinely transferring ownership such that someone else is acquiring an interest, that's where problems can start to happen.
0: Okay, great insight. I think just a couple more questions as We're as we're wrapping up. I'd love your thoughts on the future of title. I know there's a lot of things kind of moving. You talked a little bit about e-notary. What as it relates to technology as well as policy? if You had a crystal ball to look over the next five, 10 years. How is title evolving?
1: Yeah, I think to think about how title is evolving, you really have to think about how real estate is evolving because title insurance is simply the infrastructure supporting real estate transactions And it's going to be consumer demand and business interests and so on that really dictate what needs to happen in the industry. And so for us, we think about sort of a couple of key trends. First one, and I think most pertinent to to your audience, is more and more properties are being owned for investment purposes. And more of these properties are being owned by sort of small capital estate investors Right, there's really the, the proliferation, and I know you know stock plays such a huge role in this, but really getting more people into the SFR industry. And that means there are more transactions happening at a distance and more transactions happening by people that really care about efficiency and convenience. And so and, and there's a there's a similar effect by analogy happening in the sort of the retail sector. People buying homes selling homes, accessing alternative finance methods where all of these things are really gearing towards you know digital experiences remote experiences and especially low cost and transparent experiences and for me what that means is that infrastructure has to move with it and so you know for Spruce that means things like enabling companies via apis enabling ourselves to be more efficient, using automation for many of these processes so that we can strip costs out of the transaction and i think it also means productizing the real estate transaction process in a national way such that you know companies that are operating online for example you know the internet doesn't have state borders they should be able to offer a consistent experience to their consumers irrespective of where the property is And so for me, it's a lot about standardization, digitization, and costs should come down with that. It will be a slow march, I think. I'm excited as one of the potential, one of the very few silver linings out of what has been happening recently with the pandemic is that more states have realized the urgency and the value in allowing for distance closings you know, remote you know authorizations and so on, and these are things that hopefully will be a trend that continue in the future and serve to just reduce friction in the real estate transaction.
0: Preach! Love it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple of uh, quick fire questions for you, but Michael, do you have any
2: other last questions you want to ask? I've got one final question for you, Patrick, and I think I already know the answer. Okay. But is there is there ever an instance other than the courthouse step scenario when we talked about where getting an owner settle policy doesn't make sense?
1: I would never recommend it, and I'll sure. show you the, the reason is right. It's you can be, you know, you can be as skeptical as you want about the likelihood of some a problem arising, but really, the it, it's less about your owner. Your own concerns, and more about think about what those that subsequent buyer's concerns are, right? If you're going to sell the property at some point, you're going to have to make sure the property is insurable, and so it's just one of those things where, in the scheme of things, it, it's probably not worth the risk of something not not being um, not being insurable. Sure. Okay.
0: Great. All right. I got a couple of a uh, quick fire questions for you. These are just kind of quick, you know, either or decision, some real estate related, some not. Are are you ready for this, Patrick? Ready. (laughs) All right. Consolidation or diversification?
1: We've got to be diversification.
0: High rent growth or low vacancy?
1: Speaking as a renter, I'm going to say low vacancy.
0: Love it. Me too. Cash flow or appreciation? Cash flow. Debt or equity?
1: Maybe a, a healthy amount of both.
0: I like it. I like it. Local or remote investing.
1: Come on, it's gotta be remote.
0: That's right. Turnkey or massive project.
1: Turnkey for every day and then maybe one massive project in your life.
0: Yeah, a, a love project. yeah, uh, all right. last last three. Uh, midnight oil or early bird worm.
1: Oof, both.
0: Spoken (laughs) spoken like a true co founder and CEO. It's been
1: both it's been both for a number of years now. I don't see any sign of that changing.
0: Uh text message or email? Email. Olive oil or butter?
1: Oh, both at the same time.
0: Oh, I like it. I like it. That was it. Those are our quick fire questions. So but always a pleasure speaking with you. Patrick, how can people get a hold of you? Tell us a, a little bit more about Spruce. The floor is yours.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you can find us at spruce.co, that's our website. You could email me, Patrick at spruce.co, or, you know, I think that we're out there on all the social channels as well. But um, of course, the best way to to work with Spruce would be, you know, go buy a property on Roofstock and uh, use us as the the title title and escrow provider.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been super enjoyable and learning a ton. Great, great to connect. Yeah. This was great, Patrick.
1: No, absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, everyone. Awesome. Thanks.
0: Awesome. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you found it helpful. Today's episode was brought to you by Roofstock Academy. Roofstock Academy is a one-stop shop to get to the next level of your real estate investing. Roofstock Academy includes 10 hours of 10 sessions of coaching, over 50 hours worth of lectures, the SFR playbook, and plus a lot more. So check us out at roofstockacademy.com. In the meantime, we've got a promo code for our podcast listeners. Use the promo code podcast for $100 off. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe and leave us a rating. All right, happy investing.